I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. The topic we're about to discuss today is a topic that's very personal to me. As you can imagine, after the loss of my wonderful son Ali, I've dedicated a lot of time, a lot of research and a lot of effort to understanding the topic of death. What happens to us when we die? Is there really something after death? You know, your heart as a parent wants to know that your child is safe. One of the most informative studies on the topic of death from a scientific point of view is the study of near-death experiences. And my guest today, the cardiologist Dr. Pim van Lommel, has studied near-death experiences in patients who survived cardiac arrest for more than 20 years. In 2001, Pim, along with other collaborators, published their seminal study on the subject in the reputable medical journal, The Lancet. In 2007, he published best-selling book on the topic in the Netherlands, which he then translated into English in 2010, and it was published under the name Consciousness Beyond Life, the science of the near-death experience. For many, many years to follow, Pim has been lecturing all over the world on near-death experiences and the relationship between consciousness and our brain function. When we recorded this podcast, it was so touching for me that I actually decided to publish it even though you may recognize that the quality of the audio today might be slightly less than we have attempted to get you accustomed to in terms of super high quality audio in slow-mo in general. The content, however, was so inspiring, so personal, so spontaneous and so touching that I would hope you forgive the slightly lower quality on Pim's side and hopefully focus on the incredible, incredible knowledge and inspiration that he will share. Forgive the quality, enjoy the content in this incredible conversation with Dr. Pim van Lommel. When I read the last chapter of your book about your communication with Ali, Uh then what I thought was the first idea I had, a sudden death, is never unexpected. Explain, what does that mean? He knew the last weeks of his life. He was talking about death. He was asking questions about death. What is death? Mm. So unconsciously, he was aware that he would die. So it's, it's actually not the first time. So before that, a few months before Ali died, my father-in-law left our world as well. And he he absolutely knew he was leaving. I mean, both of them, even my dad, my dad, this is a story I've never shared. My dad who loved me so dearly and wanted my safety and my life to be incredible, really, really set me up for life as as best as he could for his capabilities. And at the time we lived in Egypt and I was about to get married and in Egypt, telecommunications was insufficient, if you want. So, so to get a telephone at home was a big deal. And he had two phones at home. And a week before he died, he just called me and said, look, we need to go and transfer one of those lines to you, right? And after he did it, he looked at me and said, okay, I've done all I can for you. I think now I can leave you in peace. And I I'm like, what are you talking about? And maybe he meant in my mind, he maybe he meant now you're responsible. You can do things on your own. But of course, then a week later, 
I realized that he was meaning, I want to make sure that you have everything you need so I can sort of die peacefully, which is quite eye-opening when you think about it, that they know. That's another, another case of a sudden death is never unexpected. So your father knew unconsciously that he was dying or he would die. But how come, Pim? I mean, how, how do we know that? Because everything is stored in the highest aspects of consciousness. Everything. So in a near-death experience, you can have flash forward or future, you see future events. So sometimes you can have access to what is going to happen in your life or what is going to happen in the world. Even in 9-11, there were people who knew days before what would happen. So everything is stored. And the day of your death, your natural death, is stored somewhere in the higher consciousness. And what you're saying is when we get closer to death, we start to elevate our ability to connect to the higher consciousness. And so we can start to see more into... Usually they are not conscious about it. It just happens. Just like your father was changing the telephone, but it wasn't because he knew that he would die, that, that he was an inner feeling that he would change it. And that's the same with Ali. He was asking about death and about afterlife, not consciously because he knew that he would die, but unconsciously he was aware that he would die. And I know many more stories, especially also for children, who, who asked a mother, mother, what is death? What is going to be death? And then two hours later, she, this little girl of six was hit by a truck and she died. And, and another boy who made a drawing of a big tree with a branch broken off and he drew a small boy under the tree. And two hours later, he walked outside and they were busy with a tree and branch broke and he was, he was dead. He was killed by the tree. And he drew it two hours before it really happened. You see, the big thing here is that we rarely ever discuss death. And you, of course, with, with your career, in the medical field, you're almost restricted to talk about things that are not proven by science, right? And death is sadly not measurable. It's not within the scientific method, if you want. It's not within the, the realm of what science accepts as measurable. And, and so you gathered this courage to talk about a topic that is very taboo. And I recall in one of your speeches that this started in 1969 when resuscitating cardiac arrest patients started. One of the first coronary care units in Holland. And it was just before that time, before 67, all patients died because modern resuscitation techniques like defibrillation and external chest compression were not available. That's why the first coronary care units were started in 68, also in, in the Netherlands. So before that time, each patient with cardiac arrest died. That's incredible when you say, when I hear you say that. I mean, imagine how advanced we've become. Oh, yes. When you think about this, this is amazing. We take it for granted now that those things are available. We see them in the movies. But 1967, that wasn't available. If you had a heart attack, you died. So the first articles about electrical defibrillation and external chest, chest compression were from 66, 67. And so your first patient to save with that was in 1969. 60, yes, 69. I was in charge. It was a doctor in charge. It was one of the first patients who had a cardiac arrest in his coronary care unit. And he resuscitated and he needed several defibrillations. And then he came by, he regained consciousness. And we as a resuscitation team were so happy. We succeeded to get someone back. But the patient was deeply disappointed. <laughs> so we bring him back from death and he's like, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> and it's the same, but you will recognize it as well. When you came back, you were disappointed. Yeah, I never actually shared that publicly, but I don't know why I told you. It was so cool on the other side. Yes, of course. So usually, I always say a near-death experience is a spiritual trauma. Because it is a beautiful, impressive experience, which you cannot share with others. Doctors don't believe you, nurses even better, but still a lot of them don't believe you. The partner doesn't believe you. 
So more than 70% of patients with an elastic case get a divorce because it's not the same person as before his cardiac arrest. He changed a lot. So it is years of depression, years of loneliness, and years of homesickness before they are able to know to understand that, that what they had as an experience was a near-death experience, that it happens more often, and that it changes your life. So first you have to accept the experience, and then the second thing is to integrate it in your daily life, because you feel connected with everybody with nature. So it takes 10, 20, 30 years before you really can integrate the experience. So it's a trauma. Like all other challenges in life, if you want, it's completely life-changing. Totally life-changing. It's a life experience. It's a life insight experience. So can I start with the definition? Yeah. I'm a, a huge geek of spirituality. I was always curious, if you want. I accelerated very heavily. And one of the spiritual teachings that really intrigued me is Buddhism. And Buddhism talks about the idea of dying before you die. And in many ways, it's, you know, I understood it as leaving the worldly things behind. That's to die before you die. But then it could be an interesting definition if I think about dying before you die as a near-death experience. What is a near-death experience? Well, that's the reported memory of a consciousness, a special state of consciousness with universal elements like feeling at peace, being aware of being dead, the possibility of perception out and above your body and out of body experience to see your lifeless body and people who are busy with resuscitation or surgery coming into a dark area and then seeing a light and attracted to the light which is described usually as a tunnel and then you come in another otherworldly dimension with beautiful colors beautiful nature a light with unconditional love total acceptance wisdom and usually they see a being of light. Uh, you can meet also deceased relatives, but also other beings of light, angels, whatever you want to call them. And then usually within the being of light, you can have a life review. You relive your whole life from birth, sometimes even before birth. And don't even see what they have done, but they see what they have said, and they see what they have thought, each thought you ever had is kept also with the influence of others. So you are connected with the consciousness of other people in the past as well. So when you took some plaything from your little sister, you know how sad she was. You feel how sad she was. So you're connected with others as well. And then sometimes they go come to a border and they know when I pass this border, cross this border, I will never come back. And usually they get a, a voice from the being of light or sometimes a voice they don't recognize. And they say, it's not your time yet, you have to go back for some, some task to fulfill. And then they come back into the body. And it's a huge problem because the body is too small for their enlarged consciousness. They didn't fit in the body anymore. And then the problem that they cannot talk about it. So, and these kind of experiences are known from all mankind. Let's say when you read the Upanishads of the Vedas, but also the Tibetan Book of Death. Plato has written about it, classical near-death experience, but also that the body is the temporary carrier of the soul, which stays always. So it has always been known through the Middle Ages, the mystical experiences. And then now, because of the modern techniques of resuscitation and better treatment for patients with cerebral trauma, more and more people can tell us about these special states of consciousness. Cardiac arrest, clinical death is one of the causes, but also loss of blood in complicated childbirth, coma due to traffic accident or cerebral trauma or stroke. You can have near drowning in children. You can have it in surgery. And there's general anesthesia as well. But you can also have it in fear of death situations like an impending traffic accident or impending uh, mountaineering. You can have it as, as well. And you can have it in meditation, in severe depression or existential crisis. You can have it in meditation. The astronauts Glenn and Mitchell had, had it in the capsules above the Earth. Lindbergh had it when he flew over the ocean. But you can also have these kind of experiences without any obvious reason, like a walk in nature. 
you can also have this enhanced consciousness during the terminal stage of, of illness and the, they're called deathbed visions or end-of-life experiences. So there are many circumstances where this enhanced consciousness can occur and you always have a transformation. Hold on before you talk about the transformation. So what you're saying is it doesn't actually have to be associated with clinical death. It is sort of a disassociation of our physical form, which could happen in meditation, for example. And as long as you leave the physical, the body, the body behind, and you're connected to that universal consciousness, you're in a near-death experience, which it's almost like a simulation of death where you don't have a body anymore. Now, the problem is I'm a scientist, a cardiologist. So the only circumstances where you can discuss the relation between the function of the brain and consciousness is in cardiac arrest. So you cannot do a prospective study in patients who had meditation or, or near drowning, etc. But in cardiac arrest, people are unconscious within seconds. The blood flow to the carotid artery is zero within one or two seconds. The body reflexes are gone. This is the function of the cortex. Yeah. The brainstem reflexes are gone. And the breathing is gone because the breathing center is close to the brainstem. And when you measure the electrical activity of the brain, which is the EEG, you see a flatline EEG within 10 to 20 seconds. Now, in these circumstances, in our study, about 20% of the those patients experienced an enhanced consciousness with the possibility of perception, with cognition, with emotion, with feelings. And that is impossible according to our current materialist science because we still think or believe, and that's what I learned on medical school as well, that consciousness is a product of the brain. So this kind of study proves that we should change our ideas about the mind-brain relationship. Uh-huh. Well, so you cannot get out of your body when you believe that your consciousness is a product of brain function. Yeah, exactly. You hold on to that body very strongly because that body becomes the enabler of being, if you want. So a lot of people believe that they are their body. But after a near-death experience, they say, I have a body and I am consciousness. Oh, that is so profound. I have a body is very different than I am my body. Can you explain a bit about that out-of-body experience? Because I think that actually is quite capable of explaining the difference. So patients would actually view their own body or be out of it, right? Be out of the physical form. I can tell a story about it. That was published in our article in the Lancet as well in 2001. So a man of 44 years old was brought into a hospital. He was found in a meadow about 30 minutes before. He was totally unconscious. And when he was brought into the hospital, he was already cold, had blue places in his body already. He was not breathing. There was no circulation. His pupils were widened and didn't react to light. And the first thing the nurse did was to intubate the patient because they wanted to give them more oxygen. And he found out that this patient had a, a prosthesis in his mouth. So he took out the prosthesis and put it somewhere on the crash card. He's sliding somewhere underneath. And they started to do the CPR and it took about one half hour before he had again blood pressure and heart rhythm, which is quite long, but he was a young. So they tried, continued to resuscitate him. And after one hour, so he had blood pressure and heart rhythm, but he didn't breathe at all. He was still in coma. It was an artificial respiration. So he was transported to the ICU to continue the artificial respiration for one week. So he was one week in coma, and then he regained consciousness and was brought back into the coronary care. And he was just there, and a nurse came in for medication, and he saw the nurse and said, you know where my right dentures are. And he could describe where this nurse had put the dentist somewhere underneath in the slide, underneath in the crash cart. He could describe the appearances of the nurses and the doctors who was being with his CPR. He could describe from above how the resuscitation room looked like where he was brought in, in coma and he was also transferred in coma to the intensive care, but still could describe in too detail everything from the resuscitation. So that proves that he really was able to perceive 
from above his lifeless body with resuscitation. He could recognize nurses in the resuscitation. And this proved because he asked the nurse as well that it really happened what he had seen. And he was in coma during that time without any blood pressure, without any circulation, without any breathing. But this goes much deeper than just the idea of an out-of-body experience, because basically you're saying here that he could see without eyes, yes. he could reason and create memories without brain. Exactly. Why do we need those organs at all? I mean, in an interesting way, that's a superpower. Like It's almost like remote viewing or remote connection to something that's across the world. Remote viewing is also perception out and above your body to a different place. And it is an aspect of non-local consciousness. So what people experience in their near-death experience is an experience beyond time and beyond space. Because you have a three minutes or two minutes kind of rest, but you can talk for a week or longer. Everything what happens, it happens on the same time, everything what happens at the same time, and you can be somewhere else at the moment you think about it. So there's no space and no time in this experience. So remote viewing, what I call non-local perception. You can perceive things somewhere else because you have access to this non-local consciousness. Is this body we're in our vehicle, our, our tool to navigate the physical world, or is it our prison? Because in all honesty, I'd love to see without eyes. I'd love to be able to go beyond the capabilities of my brain in terms of cognition. Why are we imprisoned in this? And you said we can do that without dying. We can do that in meditation, for example. Is that a human ability that is untapped, unexplored? Is it something we should try to become more of? When we realized that about 30, 40 million people have had a near-death experience all over the world. Yeah. 20 million in Europe, about 15 million in the USA, and all over the other countries as well. So quite a lot of people have had this kind of experience as well. And it is all about the transformation that we can talk about later, is that they still have the capacity to tap into this enhanced consciousness, what I call enhanced intuitive sensitivity. So your brain and body is an interface or a transceiver. Even your people say it's a filter. So a lot of information outside, your body and brain filters just a small part of this information from your non-local consciousness into our your waking consciousness. And your memories you have here in your body is just a small part of the memories that are stored in your non-local consciousness. So your brain and body has a filter function, an interface to explain it to other people, I always compare, and I'll be clear for you as well. So you need an instrument yeah. to receive one billion websites or one billion YouTube films, but your computer does not produce these websites. It doesn't produce the iCloud. The iCloud is always everywhere. The difference is, it is with the speed of light. There's no local consciousness, it's beyond light, beyond time. So the people understand that you need your iPhone, you need your computer to receive a lot of information, but it is not stored, not produced yeah. by this instrument. So your body and brain is just an instrument to receive information. So the internet is not on my phone. My phone just perceives the internet and consciousness is not within my body. It's non-local as you define it. It's actually out there and my body receives a bit of it almost like a radio station so not all of it because you know it's tuned into something but basically receives a bit of it it's inside and outside the body it's everywhere in each cell comes information from consciousness i have a, a couple of questions here so if something is so common i mean you said what hundreds of millions of people must have experienced it 40 50 million what we know yeah, I was going to say a few tens of millions have shared it. I've seen you once actually, interestingly, in one of your lectures, where at the end of the lecture you said, can you please raise your hand if you had a, a near-death experience? And many people did. They probably have never shared it. They probably felt awkward about it. Maybe they dismissed it as, oh, that was my brain hallucinating. But it must have happened frequently. And you know, there are many, many stories and many successful books about the topic. But why is something 
so pervasive and so important for our understanding of life and death and so important for our medicine and medical. I mean, it should change our entire approach to medicine because that basically means if say one of every five people has a near-death experience that by the time they come back, we should probably treat them for that. We should talk about it, right? Why is it not studied? Why is it not put out there as a paramount topic to discuss? Once again, I will stop here for a second to apologize one more time for the slightly lower quality on PIM's microphone side than what we're used to on slow-mo. I hope you agree that the content is so inspiring and informative, so spontaneous that it couldn't be replicated and accordingly publishing it with a slightly lower quality than what we got you used to on slow-mo is better than keeping this content unpublished and unshared with the world. Forgive us for the quality. Enjoy the content. Well, first of all, about your, what you mentioned about when I asked people in the audience who had a near-death experience, you see quite a few of them, that the reason they come to a lecture is because they had this kind of experience. Mm. And the second question is always, do you ever have the inner feeling of knowing to be in contact with the consciousness of the deceased relatives? And then 40% of the people raised their hand and said, I had it. They never talk about it. So about one of the 25 million people in Europe must have had this kind of experience after that communication. And in the US, about 100 million. But they're silent about it. They say, it's just a dream. I dreamed about it. But it is so real and they never forget it. And now about your research, there has been some research done about the death experiences, but huge taboo, because what we learn in medical school is that consciousness is a product of brain function. And most neuroscientists still believe that consciousness is a product of brain function. So they are studying the brain, hoping to find consciousness, but they will not find it. So then they change the idea that consciousness is not a product of the brain, that the brain is just an instrument. Then they lose the position at universities. They lose the research money. Mm-hmm. So they're yeah. frightened. They're totally frightened. And when they retire, then they openly change their minds. But I know quite a lot of professors who share with me the idea that you could be right, but officially they say this is total nonsense until they retire. And what you call science it's widely accepted, the material approach. So science is what you can measure, what you can objectify, what you can duplicate, what you can falsify. That is science. Now, what you feel and what you think, so the subjective aspects of consciousness, you cannot measure, you cannot objectify, you cannot duplicate, you cannot falsify. This according to materialist science, consciousness does not exist at all. Can you imagine that? That's the challenge. They say consciousness is just an illusion. So they don't like articles about the death experience or after-death communication. And the 200 main scientists who are in the editorial boards of the main scientific journals, 97% is agnostic or atheist. And they refuse to publish papers about this subject. While the general population, about 70%, is religious or spiritual. So they're just totally frightened to change the paradigm in science. So what's now happening worldwide is the change to what's called expanding science or towards a post-materialist science where you include subjective experiences. This materialistic approach to science gets me to start wondering if we know anything at all. I mean, in a very interesting way, you and I both know, and I think anyone who's seen a corpse knows that we are not just our body. Because my wonderful, my wonderful, wonderful Ali, he was so handsome, Habibi, he was such a wonderful being. But when something left his body, I don't know what it is, and I don't know if it was ever in his body, but you know, the moment after he died, you could easily say, this is not Ali. What's left behind, it's the same exact cells, the same exact look, but it wasn't him. Of course, I can't prove that by science. I can't prove that there was a connection with something that we can't measure, but it's clear, right? And somehow, if you can imagine that science refuses to look at all of those other realities, like 
I love someone and I can't measure that. I'm thinking about something and you know, you can't measure it with science. It's true, but you can't measure it with science. And science continues to say, hold on, but I know everything. I think that's a massive paradox, right? So we have to change the definition of science. We have to include subjective experiences. It's the all-inclusive science. And most scientists that science is just material aspects of the world. The aspect of the world is just a material aspect, the physical aspect. It's not the essence. The essence of who we are is our consciousness. But still people believe when you die, also your consciousness has died. Nothing is left. But when you hear about all those stories of the death experiences or after death communication or end of life experiences, etc., then you know that consciousness will never disappear. So there's a continuity of consciousness after the death of the body. The death is just like birth, a changing state of consciousness. And perhaps even an enhanced state of consciousness, as per what you described. It is because a changing state is an enhanced state of consciousness. Because there's no physical limitation to your consciousness. Okay, so let me ask you about this. So we spoke about the out-of-body experiences, the life review, the idea of seeing a light or nature, meeting loved ones and so on. So this is what happens during the experience. But after the experience, you refer to something that you call a STE, a uh, spiritual transformative experience. Exactly. So tell us about that. I mean, you said that 70% get a divorce because they can't speak about it. But what else happens now that I've come back from a near-death experience? Well, I know that yourself will know it as well, as I can tell you. Yes. So there's no fear of death anymore. Totally. You're convinced that there is a continuity of consciousness after death. Totally. Second is a new insight of what is important in life. That's what's your book about. So important in life is first to start with empathy and unconditional love towards yourself mm -hmm. and accept your own negative aspects everybody has and then unconditional love compassion empathy towards others and towards nature because you feel one with everybody and everything that's why the death experience is also called the experience of unity and this feeling of unity still exists and this is what i call the enhanced intuitive sensitivity so you still feel connected with others. And that means that your the instrument, your body and brain, has terminally changed. And you're not receive channel one, your own consciousness, but channel two, three, four, or five, consciousness of others. So you know what others feel. You know what others think. Oh. You know that people will die in three months, and they will die, indeed, in three months. So you feel connected with nature. You feel the pain of planet Earth. And this is an answer. So your reception ability your filter has permanently changed. So this is like a paranormal gift. It is like a... I never used to turn to paranormal because it's normal. Mm. You need a new paradigm. And a new paradigm is inclusive science. So it's, I never used the word paranormal. It's normal. I never used the word parapsychology. It's psychology. It's just about consciousness. Are there examples, I mean, stories that you know of someone that came back from a near-death experience and started to see into the future or to connect remotely with others? Is that something that actually happens and is documented? Always. They don't start to talk about it spontaneously. You have to ask about it. And they're reluctant to share it with others. Do you know the feeling of feeling something before it happens? Myself, personally, of what you spoke about, I promise you, and I'm not exaggerating, I feel the feelings of others as if I'm reading a white page. So I tell people openly, look, I know exactly what's going in your heart. I know exactly. It's almost to me like I'm reading a book and it's shocking. Yeah. The reception ability has permanently changed and people are afraid of you because when you tell this. So most people with any are silent about it because the first time that they start to talk about these things, People don't want to see them anymore. So you should be very reluctant to share this capacity with others. So I have a very engineer-like question here, which is sadly the way I think about life. And that's all right. <laughs> Me too. Before I started to study medicine, I wanted to start uh, physics. Uh-huh. 
then I changed tremendously. So I'm very, what we call a beta. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I'm going to come to that because you used physics in your book in a very yes. interesting way. But but let's let's talk about an engineer's dream is if something works so well, I want to replicate it over and over. If a near-death experience enhances perception so much, is there any advice you would give people to get to that place without having to have a cardiac arrest. But is there a practice that people can follow to start getting that enhanced ability to connect? You call it the connectedness of all of us. And I find this to be probably the most amazing part of non-local consciousness is that you can feel others. Exactly. Now, people try it with drugs, psychoactive drugs like ayahuasca Mm -hmm. or LSD or or psilocybin. They try it. And it can happen that people can have this period of enhanced consciousness, but usually they have frightening hallucinations, etc. So usually it's not positive experience they have. Usually, so it's depending on the doses of the music of the man who gives it to you, etc. But there have been stories written down that DMT, ayahuasca, LSD, and also with psilocybin, people can have a changing experience, so they just have a transformation as well. And what is interesting, they measure the electrical activity in the brain during use of DMT, so ayahuasca or LSD or whatever. And what they saw is that special areas of the brain have a diminished activity in enhanced consciousness. So in a cardiac arrest, there is no activity at all. Using these drugs enhances the possibility to get out of your body to get into this enhanced consciousness. So it's not a product, enhanced consciousness is not a product of this LSD or DMT or whatever, but this helps to break the connection between the body and consciousness. So it is less activity in the brain that gets you to become more conscious. That is a very profound statement. And that's also in meditation where you get a lot of delta, etc. People who meditate for years and years, they have a permanent state of enhanced activity in the brain as well, which also changes during meditation. And that's what we call neuroplasticity. So changes in consciousness causes changes in the function and the structure of the brain. You see the same thing. You see changes in the brain because of changes in consciousness. So the concept here is non-local consciousness. Our consciousness is not in our bodies. It's everywhere. It is one consciousness for all of us. We tap into it. We get limited sometimes by filters in our brains, but we can open up to all of this. Everyone that I have ever spoken to that had a near-death experience would talk about love. And I, as an engineer, as a mathematician, I completely acknowledge love. I feel a ton of it. I love everything and everyone. It's really scary. But I can't measure it. I can't have an equation that describe it. What is that abundance of love that we feel when we're in higher states of consciousness? Why is love part of this at all? I think it's the essence of who we are. It's light and it is love. And the being of light, of the aspect of enhanced consciousness or divine consciousness, of cosmic consciousness, is pure love, a pure light beyond time and beyond space. Oh my God, that's an amazing definition. That's actually the first time I get an answer on the topic of love has no equation, because basically what you're saying is when everything else ceases, what we are inside is just love. That's the essence of who you are. Wow. And because it's not in our physical realm, there are no possibilities to measure it, to objectify it, to duplicate, etc. Because it's not in this physical realm, not in this physical world. It's in another dimension, another realm. And so do you subscribe to that idea of the divine or the universal consciousness is pure love? Is that something that you think is true? A pure light. Yeah. Light and love. Oh my God, Pam, that's incredibly interesting. And you can call it God, you can call it Allah, you can call it Buddha, whatever, it doesn't matter at all. You give it a name. Absolutely. It doesn't matter at all. Yeah, I mean, I'm reasonably religious and definitely very spiritual. I just respect everyone's views by calling it a neutral name. I avoid the brand name, if you want, that religions have tried to, to take charge of. 
And the idea of describing it as well is actually quite a, a challenging thing for me because how can I describe something that is not perceived with my physical senses? And so this is why when you spoke about the idea of being able to see without eyes, that is a mega promise because then you see what is not to be seen. That is really a very interesting paradigm. They call it mind sight. Mm. Mind sight. And there's a study been done by Ken Ring about 20 people who were blind from birth or blind for more than 10 years. And several of those people had a near-death experience and they could see for the first time during the death experience. They could see light, they could see people, they could see nature. They have never seen anything like that. Because when you are born blind, you don't dream, you don't see anything. So the mind sight is called because you can see, not with your eyes. And the other thing is when you see, using your eyes, what is seeing, who is seeing? So it's electromagnetic information coming into your eye, electromagnetic information to the optical lobe of your brain. But who is seeing? The difference between electromagnetic information and seeing is consciousness. So also you see because you're conscious and you use your body and brain and eyes to see. And without this body, you still can see, but you see 360 degrees around. You can see the overview and the detail at the same moment. So you have a different kind of perception. So I always talk about perception. You see with your eyes, you have perception by your mind. And that perception is timeless and not limited by space. Exactly. So at the moment you think at home, you will be at home. You think of your father or family member somewhere in the hospital, you will be there at the same moment. Which of course is our understanding of physics. I mean, if you really think of space-time, and you know, one of my theories is that, of course, consciousness cannot be part of the physical because it wouldn't be able to perceive the physical if it was. And so if it's outside space-time, that basically means it has a holistic perception of all of space and all of time. That's a, and that's the definition of non-locality. <laughs> mm, yeah. Let's stick with physics for a second. In your amazing book, by the way, if you guys have not read it, absolutely have to read it, Conscious Beyond Life bestseller with, I don't know, maybe more than 300,000 copies or something like that. Anyway. It's now in Chinese and it's coming in Russian as well. And amazing book. And you, you use quantum physics to say that it's the objective reduction. It's basically the collapse of the wave function that creates consciousness. So let, let me explain to those who are not very familiar with quantum physics. We, we say that nothing really exists until you observe it in very, very simple terms that everything is, is a wave of probabilities. It's possible for anything to be anywhere at any point in time. But then when you observe it, it becomes, it becomes something and then it becomes a reality. And so in your book, you talk about that objective reduction as the method for consciousness to exist. Can you elaborate a bit on that? You explained it already because it's a field of wave fields of information with probabilities. And because of your consciousness, you get access to, let's say, what you really want to see. So it also means that science is subjective. And the double split experiment, what I described in my book as well. So you can prove that light behaves as particles. You can prove that light behaves as waves. So depending on the experiment, depending on the consciousness of the observer, what the result of the experiment will be. So both is possible. And also experiment when you see, when you want to measure an electron somewhere, you can measure the location, but never you can measure how fast it goes. It's always everywhere the electron, but when you measure it, you see it at one point here, the other time you see it here. But without measuring, it's always everywhere. Yeah, but the implications of what we're talking about here are much more because basically this says that consciousness is not the observer of the movie. It's the author of the story, the director of the movie and all of the actors. It's basically creating reality, not just observing it. No, it's all. They sometimes say that when you use a projector for a film, you don't put a film in it, you just see light, the film, that's the content of consciousness, you see. But without the content, there's still consciousness, but it is without any content. It's the beautiful light. 
So let's conclude on this in, a, in the most pressing question of them all. So what is death? Death is just the end of our physical body. And there's a continuity of consciousness. And that is because we know from older patients who had a near-death experience, you know, from patients who had in a near-death experience contact with the consciousness of deceased relatives, even sometimes they didn't know that someone was there. They met him and then after yeah. when they regained consciousness, they heard that he had died. You know, from end-of-life experiences where people tell me, oh, their mom for mother or brother who died, come to take me. And then after that communication, where you are mostly during the first week, two months, but sometimes years, that you have contact with the consciousness of deceased relatives and you have communication with them, you can see them, you can feel them, you can smell them. And sometimes there's communication with something, information you didn't know and you couldn't know, could not know it. And then you, so there's an objective aspect as well, that deceased relatives tell you something and you look after it and it seems to be true. But usually this kind of contact is during sleep, because when you sleep, your filter function is more open. So the deceased person has better access to you. When you awake, there's a kind of a wall between it, that when you're asleep. So usually we say, I had a dream of someone who died. But there's a lot of information about it. And usually this kind of conscious experience, they will never forget. A dream usually you forget. They never forget what happened. Usually the message is, don't worry about me, I'm okay, I'm fine. Don't worry about me, etc. So that's the first communication. But sometimes they can come back for years. How about Ali? Do you still have contact with him? Oh, yeah. He is quite talkative. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and he's quite prescriptive and he's quite timely and he... He addresses topics very interestingly. We're chatting. It's not just dreams. He he sends very clear messages. I'm I said that to a lot of people. Ali on his birthday last year, January 14th, literally told me everybody knows that the plague is coming and everybody knows that it's moving fast. That was way before we heard of COVID-19. And, you know, I shared that with my uh, my coach who's from the Netherlands, uh, Sonia, as you may have known her. Yeah, I got your book from her. Yeah. <laughs> She's such a wonderful, wonderful, amazing being. And, you know, I only shared it with her because I thought this would be me hallucinating, but it was super accurate and on time. It's not a hallucination. It's not a hallucination at all. Yeah. And do you ask him for communication or does he come spontaneously? I do sometimes, but I'm a very organized person in terms of exploring my spirituality and exploring my state of life and so on. And so... He comes in exactly at the right time, if you want, when I'm in a certain conversation. And I think more important for my writing, I've just submitted my third book to uh, my publishers who are raving about it. It's called Scary Smart about artificial intelligence. And I got stuck at chapter seven, I think, where the book was just not what I needed it to be. And then I was woken up normally at 4.11 in the morning with a very, very clear message that completely flips the direction of my writing, clearly not something I ever had in mind about artificial intelligence, clearly something I don't, I didn't understand before. And I don't know if it's Ali or not, but he tends to have that habit of 4.11 in the morning, just because he likes a good laugh. So he only, <laughs> he only talks at 4.11, but it's very regular and very frequent for me, actually. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful in many ways, because like you, I really don't believe that death is the end. I don't even believe there was a beginning. And I think our, again, understanding of physics will tell you, if you really understand space-time, you understand that the arrow of time is an illusion of the physical world, but it's not the reality of consciousness beyond the physical at all. My book is called in Dutch, Endless Consciousness of Infinite Consciousness, because there is no beginning, nor will ever be an end to consciousness. Which begs the question, why do people, I mean, I definitely, I get very, very careful when I say those comments because I think life is beautiful and life needs to be lived fully. So in no way I would want people to think that because there is no end, so what's the point in living? As a matter of fact, because there is no end, the whole point is in living. Like a gamer, when you know that the video game is never gonna end, that you're always going to be there, you play fully. You don't care if the character takes 
you know, a few risks or, or enjoys a few journeys that are new, you completely dedicate yourself to it. But it's quite refreshing to see that science too, or at least a scientist like you too, will say, yeah, absolutely. There is enough evidence to say that we never really die. We're always alive. And it is because of all the people that have, have spoken with me or they have shared their experience with, with emails, etc., from all over the world about their own experience. Mm. I think you have inspired so many of us today, Pim. I'm so, so grateful for the time. I have to admit to you, when I didn't feel very well when we were about to record last time, I was disappointed. And then today, when I was looking forward to it, I thought maybe today would be the best time for it. It was supposed to happen today. And I absolutely have to say, you completely inspire me. You inspire hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And I'm so grateful for your contribution, so grateful for your time, for your conversation today. It's been really wonderful. I just always say, I'm grateful that I'm possible to share these experiences with others. This conversation, as you can imagine, has truly touched my heart and enlightened me in so many ways. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope it left you with a lot of food for thought. Death is not really what we think it is. And consciousness is totally pervasive beyond that incidence of death. There's a lot of scientific evidence that cannot be ignored. If you've enjoyed this as much as I did, then please do me a favor and help me spread this message to as many people as I possibly can reach. Your part is really not that complicated. Just rate this podcast five stars, leave a nice kind comment so that you can inform others that this is worth their time. Share it on social media or just call a friend or send a link to the podcast on WhatsApp to someone you care about. Find me on social media and tell me what I can do to improve slow-mo for you. Suggest guests that you think would make a difference to yourself and others, and we will reach out and try to ask them to become guests here. Or simply share with me some questions that you're seeking answers to. We will try and strive to find the right guests to answer those questions. Topics, perhaps, that you are curious about, anything really. I'm Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram, Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn, mo.gaudet.official on Facebook, and mgaudet on Twitter. Once again, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity that you give me to host incredible guests such as Pim today and learn so much and be inspired just with the alibi that I will share this with all of you. Do invest time in your own happiness and calm. Do slow down because I will tell you, I am a very busy person too. And regardless of how much is on my agenda, I always can find time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.